Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Thanks for your patience. We had a little bit of technical difficulty um, connecting um, with our, our with our offsite audience. Um, for the benefit of those of you who did not have a chance to see the CME code before now, um, the code today is R8MB. So go ahead and text that in, and then uh, I will um, welcome. Dr. Gary Schwartz to introduce today's speaker. Dr. Schwartz is an associate professor of medicine and the acting section chief of medical oncology. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. So it's my pleasure to introduce Jason Ferris to you. Um, uh, Jason is the director of the Early Phase Clinical Trials Program at North Scott and Cancer Center. Uh, he graduated from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, completed internship and residency uh, training at Mass General Hospital and fellowship training at the combined Dana-Farber and Mass General Cancer Center program. Between the first and second years of his fellowship, he served as chief resident in internal medicine at Mass General. Prior to his arrival at the North Cotton Cancer Center in late 2019, he was a senior clinical program leader at the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, where he led multidisciplinary teams in the design, conduct, and analysis of early phase clinical trials, inclusive of protocol writing, uh, regulatory filings, clinical trial conduct, and analysis of key, key clinical and translational data. Prior to Novartis, Dr. Ferris was a clinical investigator at the Mass General Cancer Center with a subspecialization in gastrointestinal malignancies. He was a principal investigator at, at MGH on multiple sponsor-initiated clinical trials, and he designed and conducted an investigator-initiated trial of cabozatinib for patients with neuroendocrine tumors with independent research support. He's authored, or is a co-author, on more than 30 journal articles and 20 research abstracts. In his current role, he plans to grow the current, the current portfolio of early-phase clinical trials available to patients at North Cotton Cancer Center and to collaborate with teams of basic translational and clinical researchers to help translate research discoveries from Dartmouth and the North Cotton Cancer Center. Please welcome Dr. Ferris to Medical Grand Rounds. His talk is entitled, Improving Therapeutic Options for Patients with Colorectal Dr. Ferris. Thanks a lot, Gary, for that uh, very kind introduction and for the invitation and opportunity to present at Grand Rounds today. I'm going to talk about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart uh, and passionate about, which is the care of patients with colon cancer. Um, as Gary mentioned, prior to my role uh, leading clinical trials at Novartis, um, I was a GI medical oncologist and clinical investigator at MGH. Uh, in between my time taking care of patients at MGH and my early days here, um, I'm, I'm an, as inspired as ever to contribute to the discovery of novel therapeutics to advance the survival of these patients, many of whom are far too young to be dealing with the diagnosis of advanced cancer. It's heartbreaking. So while it's, while it's true that there's been an amazing improvement in the survival of patients with metastatic colon cancer, it is equally true that we have a very long way to go. So with that, uh, these are my disclosures. So the outline for the talk today, I'm going to start with a hypothetical patient, which should keep us free of any HIPAA concerns. I'll then move on to an introduction to colon cancer, focusing on the epidemiology of colorectal cancer, a phenomenon of early onset colorectal cancer, and some changing guidelines with some controversy included. I'll discuss the basic uh, staging and prognosis and management um, of localized colorectal cancer. 
And then I'm going to spend the bulk of the talk talking about advances for patients with metastatic disease. I'll talk about the transformative uh, change in the survival of patients with metastatic disease with some qualifiers. And I'll spend a good amount of time talking about immunotherapy for subsets of patients with colorectal cancer. And I'll close with some new therapeutics that are providing hope for patients with uh, metastatic colorectal cancer that I hope uh, will be approved in, in the coming weeks, months, and years. So here's the history of a present illness for, a, again, hypothetical patient to consider during the course of today's discussion. I hope this helps to uh, bring into focus some of the key issues and topics that I'll be discussing today. This is a 42-year-old woman that presented with bright red blood per rectum, change in bowel pattern, and a 20-pound weight loss. Colonoscopy revealed a 4-centimeter ulcerated mass in the sigmoid colon. A biopsy revealed a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma with intact mismatch repair proteins, and I'll spend some time talking about what that is. Surgical resection was performed, and it revealed a T4N2 tumor, stage 3 tumor, with five, five positive lymph nodes out of 21. Adjuvant therapy with six months of Folfox was delivered, but unfortunately, nine months following resection, she developed multiple liver and lung lesions, uh, stage 4 disease. Molecular genotyping was performed and revealed a pole mutation, or a pole E mutation, I should say. So what about epidemiology of colorectal cancer in the United States? So it is both the third most commonly diagnosed malignancy in males and females, and it's the third most common cause of cancer-related mortality. Almost 150,000 new cases are expected this year, and over 50,000 deaths. We each carry a 5 to 6% lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer. And the median age is a bit younger for men than women for colon cancer, 68 for men and 72 for women. And for rectal cancer, it's an earlier onset, and it's the same in both genders. It's 63. Worldwide, colon cancer is a tremendous problem as well. So 1.3 million cases were expected in 2012. Yes, that data is eight years old, but it's much harder to get the worldwide data. And there are almost 700,000 deaths. Colorectal cancer was the third and fourth leading cause of cancer death, respectively, uh, in women and men. On the right is a heat map that uses the color blue. So it's kind of a blue heat map, if you will. Um, with darker colors signifying higher age standardized rates per 100,000 people across the globe. Now, what you can see is that there's varying incidence of colorectal cancer across the, across the world, but there are the highest rates in the world are in a few places. So there's, um, let's see this one, uh, parts of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada actually have some of the highest rates of colorectal cancer uh, in the world. Here in the U.S., there's actually been a declining incidence of colorectal cancer. Um, and this time period is uh, based on SEER data from 1975 to 2016. And you can see a decrease uh, in both males and females that really starts in the mid-1980s uh, when screening efforts in the age 50 and above population were initiated, and that decline uh, continues now. However, there's a subset of patients with colorectal cancer that are not following this trend and unfortunately are demonstrating the opposite trend, in fact. So this is the phenomenon of young-onset colorectal cancer. If you look at the graph at the top, uh, top right, you can see the age-adjusted incidence rate for 100,000 across time. And this was fairly steady, maybe even a declining incidence until about 1995. Uh, and the rate at that time was 8 per 100,000. And then there's been a steady and sharp increase, uh, such that in 2015, this was 13 per 100,000. So over one and a half fold increase in a short time frame. Uh, and this is in stark contrast to the to other age groups, which have demonstrated a decline in incidence across all age groups, most pronounced um, 
sorry, most pronounced in the greater than 75 and the 65 to 74 subgroups. So these patients with young onset colorectal cancer present with more aggressive biology and a higher stage than patients that are older than 50. And it's a, it's a really alarming increase. So more than one in 10 patients diagnosed with colon cancer um, are younger than 50. And almost one in six patients with rectal cancer are younger than 50. There's actually mixed data on survival in these younger groups. Some series report a worse prognosis, in particular the, the, sub, the series that focus on the uh, 40 and under and 30 and under subsets show an increased mortality with these diagnoses. And there's some when you include the entire group of patients under 50 that appear to demonstrate an improved prognosis. So what are the etiologies for this phenomenon of young onset colorectal cancer? No one really knows, but some of the possibilities are listed here. So it's known that genetic syndromes and germline genetic predisposition account for a substantial fraction of patients that develop young onset colorectal cancer, and a higher fraction than, those, uh, than patients that are older than 50. And the two major syndromes are Lynch syndrome and FAP, but there's a whole host of CRC hereditary syndromes uh, that are lumped into this roughly 25% of young onset colorectal cancer. But to me, that doesn't really explain the increasing incidence. That should explain a stable, a stable incidence. Um, the, the middle category here, metabolic and lifestyle um, factors, may play a big role with poor diet, junk food, high-fat diets, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome all being postulated as contributing to this phenomenon. Inflammatory bowel occurs differentially at a differential frequency in younger patients than older patients, and this may also account for the increasing uh, rate. Although, again, I, I'm kind of wondering, is, are we really seeing an increase in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, or is this also a stable uh, factor? Exposure, so history of abdominal radiation is known to predispose patients for uh, colorectal cancer. So those patients that had pediatric uh, tumors and had radiation may be incurring this risk. The one at the bottom is really interesting, so altered microbiome. So increased incidence of cesarean sections, increased use of antibiotics, uh, changes in diet and exercise. Uh, may be playing a role in this young onset colorectal cancer, although data is lacking. There is evidence that a certain strain of bacterium, Fusobacterium, may be enriched in patients with right-sided colorectal cancers. Based on this data, the screening age by the American Cancer Society was recently lowered to 45 from age 50. But not all, uh, not all guidelines are the same for this, uh, and there are some arguments against moving the screening age up. Um, and these relate to biology, resources, and expected benefits. So just to go through those a bit, um, in terms of the biology, these patients are postulated to have a more rapid transition from an adenoma to a carcinoma. And therefore, it's unclear whether the benefits of screening would apply. Because really, screening is, is meant to detect cancers before they become a cancer so that you can remove those polyps and prevent the cancer. If they're going through that transition more quickly, then that may not be possible to detect these and prevent the cancers. Um, certainly a big factor is resource diversion and cost. So resources that could be spent elsewhere are then going to be spent uh, screening lots of patients that are younger than age 50. And in terms of expected benefits, it's unproven uh, that this would result in a benefit, and there hasn't been a trial in patients younger than 50. So the, be the benefits are really based on model data, and these assume perfect adherence, unfortunately, to screening and surveillance, which we know would not happen. So those are reasonable arguments, and multiple guidelines including the American College of Physicians, have not changed uh, the screening target of age 50. Um, this is my view, and of course I have a very biased view, having taken care of a lot of patients with young onset colorectal cancer and the heartache and heartbreak that that can really cause. Um, so obviously these patients have 
more aggressive biology and, and tend to present with late-stage disease, as I, as I mentioned. And my view is detecting earlier may permit a lower-stage diagnosis and ultimately save lives. And the question is, at the bottom here, how much proof do we need? Do we, should we just adopt this, or do we need to have a randomized study? Would we be willing to randomize patients to a study where they get screened and don't get screened? And, and finally, more of a philosophical argument, but how do we place a value on, on young adults developing a potentially lethal disease? So now I'm going to move on to the basics of staging for colorectal cancer. And colorectal cancer, like other solid tumors, follow a, follow a TNM uh, paradigm for staging. So that's tumor, lymph node, and metastasis. <clears throat> for the T stage, the depth invasion of the primary tumor depicted in blue governs the T stage. So superficial tumors that don't invade very far are T1, and tumors that invade all the way through the wall are a T4 tumor. The lymph node stage is pretty straightforward. N0 means no local regional lymph nodes were involved. N1 is one to three lymph nodes, and N2 is four or greater lymph nodes. And when we put this together into a staging system, a stage one cancer is a very superficial cancer that has no lymph nodes. A stage two cancer is a cancer that has a more deeply invasive cancer with no lymph nodes. So those are highly curable, and I'll show you some prognostic statistics in, in a few minutes. Um, any tumor that has local regional lymph nodes is by definition a stage three cancer. And any cancer uh, that has distant metastatic lesions is a stage four cancer. So where does colorectal cancer tend to spread? So the most common sites are liver. Um, so 70% of patients with metastatic disease have disease in the liver. Lungs is the second most common um, at 24%. And patients with rectal cancer, for some reason, develop lung metastases at a higher rate than patients with colon cancer by, a, by an almost two-fold factor. Distant lymph nodes instead of local regions away from the primary tumor are the, is the next most common. Peritoneal lesions, which result in ascites, and this, uh, these uh, studying of the peritoneum in about 15%. And then there's a whole host of other sites that can occur, but only do so rarely in the 1% to 5% range. So in terms of stage at diagnosis and survival, I'm going to present data from a couple of SEER graphs here. So incidence is depicted on the left for localized, regional, and distant disease across all races, Caucasians, and African Americans. And then five-year survival is presented on the right with the same categories and the same classifications. So about 75% of patients present with local regional disease. Just to highlight this again, though, in early onset colorectal cancer, focusing on the less than 30 age population, which admittedly is a smaller, much smaller fraction, but over three quarters of those patients present with stage three disease. If you sum up the local, regional, and regional, sorry, local, localized and regional categories, uh, sorry, if you summarize the regional and distant, so stage three and four, of the all comers, this summarizes to roughly 55 to 60%. So this over three quarters fraction is an outsized uh, group of patients that are young that are presenting with advanced disease. So about 25% of patients, 21 to 26, present with metastatic disease at presentation where the five-year survival is less than 15%, which you can see here. One final piece I want to point out is that um, African-Americans have a higher rate of distant metastatic disease at diagnosis and they have a lower five-year survival in each of these different categories. So what about the, the site of the primary tumor? Does that matter? And there is data that suggests that it does. So on the graph on the y-axis is percent survival versus months from metastasis. 
uh, and the red line represents right-sided tumors, the blue line represents left-sided tumors, and you can see a marked difference in survival between left-sided tumors and right-sided tumors. The biology seems to be different, um, and the site of metastases is clearly different. So in the middle panel, it shows by, the, by way of these blue ribbons for left-sided tumors and red ribbons for the right-sided tumors, you can see where these tumors tend to metastasize. So left-sided tumors tend to metastasize to the liver and to the lung most commonly. And those are two sites where you can have potentially curative resections even in the stage four setting. For right-sided tumors, on the other hand, these tend to metastasize to, at higher frequencies to PAO or peritoneum, um, as well as to bone. Bone and peritoneum are both poor prognostic uh, factors in a patient with stage four disease. Yeah. So why is that? That thought to be intrinsic to the tumor? Because I would have thought the lymphatic drainage or venous drainage would be the same. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I don't think it has to do with the lymphatic drainage. I, do, I think it more has to do with the molecular um, uh, mutations that, that characterize left-sided tumors versus right-sided tumors. Um, so it, for example, on the, on the far right panel, this is actually showing the frequency of mutations in, in uh, left-sided tumors versus the mutational frequency in right-sided tumors, and see a whole group of mutations that are much more common in right-sided tumors than left, uh, and then a couple of mutations that are more common in left-sided tumors than right. Um, so no one's proven that a patient with a BRAF mutation, per se, has a higher risk of, or has a lower risk of liver or lung lesions, uh, but these mutational frequencies make me wonder if that's really the, the, uh, the culprit instead of drainage patterns or, or other factors like that. But among these right-sided mutations that associate, with, associate in a higher fraction, uh, you can see KRAS, BRAF, um, RNF43, PIK3CA. There's a whole range of mutations that seem to be more common on the right. So I'm going to pre present a simplified approach to diagnosis and management of localized colorectal cancer just as a framework. So uh, the baseline workup includes a colonoscopy to visualize the lesion and biopsy it, an MRI if this is a rectal tumor, chest, abdomen, pelvis for staging, and a baseline CEA. Some of these patients require neoadjuvant therapy. So specifically for rectal cancer, these are patients that have high T-stage lesions, so T3 and above, and or node-positive lesions, or the somewhat more rare example of an unresectable colon cancer that has not metastasized. Um, or, the, I guess the other category I don't have on here are patients that if metastasized in a very limited fashion that you're going to do neoadjuvant therapy. Then they would undergo a period of neoadjuvant therapy with chemotherapy, chemotherapy plus chemoradiation or chemoradiation alone. That's overly complex and I won't get into that now. Um, they would undergo surgery and a post-surgery CEA would be checked. And then the decision about adjuvant therapy would be had uh, based on the pathology and stage uh, of the resected tumor. So this is generally recommended for all patients with stage three disease, and it's discussed for patients with stage two disease. In particular, patients with high-risk stage two disease, patients that have T4 tumors or present with obstruction or perforation, and a, and a host of other pathological variables uh, on the resected specimen, um, tend to have a stronger recommendation to consider chemotherapy. So now I'm gonna move on to uh, something Gary alluded to in the a paragraph about why to attend this talk, which is the dramatic improvement in the survival of patients with advanced or metastatic disease in colorectal cancer. So we started at a really uh, amazingly poor point here. So in 1980, the survival of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer was just five months. And even as late as the late 1980s, it was still 10 months or less. And it was really the advent of multiple chemotherapy and targeted agents that's led to a dramatic rise 
uh, in the survival, starting with the um, fluoropyrimidine 5 fluorouracil followed by uh, rhinotecan, which is a topoisomerase inhibitor, capecitabine, the oral prodrug of 5-fluorouracil, uh, the platinum chemotherapy oxaliplatin, um, cetuximab and panitumumab, which are anti-EGFR antibodies, bevacizumab, aflibercept, and ramacirumab, which are VEGF therapies, and a targeted therapy uh, called regorafenib that I'll sometime talking about later, and finally a novel fluoropyrimidine, TAS-102. So through the combination of all of these therapies, the median survival of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer has grown to uh, 33 months. It's, it was 30 months as of this graph, but it's actually 33 months now, so almost three years, which is good. Uh, but I would argue plenty of room for improvement. And again, to come back to the statistic I mentioned earlier, less than 15% less than 15% of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer live for five years or more, which is a depressing statistic. So in honor of Terry Jones, who I don't know how many of you know Terry Jones from the Monty Python troupe, uh, who passed away earlier this week, and he himself had colon cancer, but he didn't die of colon cancer. Um, and now for something completely different. So now I'm going to talk about immunotherapy for patients with colorectal cancer. So I'm going to start with some background slides to orient those, those of you that might not uh, know about which subsets of colorectal cancer are eligible to receive immunotherapy. So starting on the top panel, panel A, we're going to talk about a group of enzymes called polymerase epsilon and polymerase delta. Um, these have exonuclease, exonuclease functions uh, and serve to limit the rate of, muta um, of mutation during genomic replication by proofreading. In the setting of a mutation in one of these enzymes, this leads to an ultra-mutated state, 100-fold increased mutation rate and higher, and they're associated with endometrial cancer and colorectal cancer. On the right is a different group of enzymes that function in post-replication surveillance that's carried out by the DNA Mismatch Repair System, or MMR. They act by converting base pair, or correcting base pair mismatches and insert, uh, insertion of deletion loops. So if you have a mutation in that mismatch repair complex, this also results in a hypermutated phenotype um, and also results in something called microsatellite instability, which I'll talk more about in a moment. These are patients, actually, uh, with Lynch syndrome, if you have a germline mutation in one of those mismatch repair proteins. So mismatch repair proteins, talked a little bit about it on the last slide. What are these proteins? So the major proteins are MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. They form heterodimers, which is depicted here. And again, their role is to repair errors in DNA that are introduced during replication. If they're mutated um, and resulting in loss of function, that's a mismatch repair deficient patient. And we can test for these, and that's the royal we, since it's our pathology group that does this. We can test for these markers by immunohistochemistry. So what about microsatellites? You keep saying that word. So microsatellites are short, repetitive tracts of DNA comprised of one to six base pairs. And altered microsatellites are created when there's defective mismatch repair. We can test for that as well by PCR. Again, royal we. So how common is microsatellite instability and defective mismatch repair? It's pretty common. So a recent study in, in JCO Precision Oncology was published looking at 11,000 norm, tumor normal pairs from the Cancer Genome Atlas and the Target Project across 39 cancer types. And shown in the graph to the right, because I couldn't fit all 39, or the most common 18. Um, and 27 of those tumor types were found to have MSI high. Almost 20% of colon cancer and almost 6% of rectal cancer were found to be MSI high. And again, I'm gonna use interchangeably defective mismatch repair and MSI high. 
The majority of colorectal, colorectal cancer patients with MSI high have stage two or stage three disease. So these are the patients that have a better prognosis and are cured more often, such that only about 5% of patients with metastatic colon cancer have mis mismatch repair deficiency or MSI high. So now we're going to talk a little bit about checkpoint inhibitors. So to mention the Nobel Prize winners that uh, generated the seminal discoveries that led to checkpoint inhibitors and their use in clinic. This is uh, James Allison and Tasuko Hanjo. Uh, you can see an antigen-presenting cell here and a tumor cell over here, T cells in the middle, and a T regulatory cell here. So tumor antigen is taken up by antigen-presenting cells. It's displayed on the surface of the antigen-presenting cell, binding to the T cell receptor. There are co-stimulatory molecules, B7 and CD28. And as long as this CTLA-4 molecule is not bound, this T cell um, is able to undergo activation, migrate to the tumor site, and hopefully end up participating in a, a process that can destroy the tumor cell. If CTLA-4, and this is specifically in the setting of an anti-CTLA-4 antibody, which is one of the seminal discoveries of James Allison. So that T cell, when it migrates to the tumor site, it has PD-1 displayed on its surface. The tumor cell may or may not have pd one on its surface. Um, the tumor cell, in turn, is displaying peptides, which bind to the T cell receptor. And if this PD-1 receptor is not bound to the pd one receptor of the tumor cell, then activation of the T cell can occur and destroy tumors. So anti-PD-1 and anti-P, this should be PDL one bodies, are able to relieve the inhibition that would otherwise be there, or the breaks on the immune response. So there are three approved checkpoint inhibitors, or three approved uh, PD-1 inhibitors, I should say. These are nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and semiplumab. There are three FDA-approved PD-L1 inhibitors, and there's one FDA-approved in 2020, so far in 2020, for CTLA-4 inhibitors. As you can see on this uh, diagram on the there are many, many diseases now that have approval for checkpoint inhibitors, and some of which have combination PD-1 uh, CTLA-4 inhibitor treatments. Um, what you'll also notice, if you read this carefully, is that there's not much colon cancer on there. So there's one subgroup of colon cancer that's eligible to receive immunotherapy, and that's the MSI high, um, or deficient mismatch repair uh, subgroup. And I think one theme for gastrointestinal cancers in general, and I think Gabe would probably agree with me on this, is that Treatments that work in other tumor types tend not to work in GI cancers, and this comes up over and over again. And while my fatalism is only half serious, I think you'll see some data in a minute that, that backs up my claim. So, um, so unfortunately, the early data with PD-1 or pd one inhibitors in colorectal cancer were um, very unsuccessful. So I'm going to take a, just a second to review what a waterfall plot is for people that don't know what that is. So this is... Um, change in percent baseline on the y-axis. This is basically they add up the measurements of each lesion on the CAT scan, the longest diameter, they add them up, and then they measure over time as the patient's treated with a clinical trial drug, is that changing? If it's changing upward, that means the tumor's growing. If it changes downward, that means the tumor's shrinking. Interestingly, they put the, the dotted line here for, for what's called a partial response at minus 50. This should be at minus 30. Um, to generate a partial response. So basically, any patient that has a 30% or more shrinkage in their initial lesions when they started on the clinical study termed having a, a partial response. And you can see that most patients had upward-pointing bars on this study. Bad news. There was only one patient that had a partial response. On the bottom is something called a spider plot. This is change in, in, in baseline, percent change in baseline over time this time. 
And you can see that most patients, first of all, were not on the study very long. And secondly, those, again, those are pointing up. So not good. But one patient out of the 23 patients treated with pembrolizumab on this study did have a response. And they didn't know this at the time, but after, um, after they did some testing, this responder was determined to have MSI high disease. So based on this responder, a subsequent trial was conducted, a phase two study of pembrolizumab in 41 patients with or without mismatch repair deficiency. 32 of those 41 patients had colorectal cancer. The other nine had non-colorectal cancer. And this waterfall is a bit more complex because the, the orangish red patients are mismatch repair proficient. The light blue bars are mismatch repair deficient colorectal cancer. And then the dark bars that I'm not really talking about today, but still interesting, are mismatch repair deficient non-colorectal cancer. And what you can see is the responses um, in all cases are patients with mismatch repair deficiency. So out of those 32 patients with colorectal cancer, 11 of them had mismatch repair deficiency, so still a very small sample size. Four of them had a response for a response rate of 40%. Again, that's a 30% more, 30% or more shrinkage of the initial starting lesions. The 21 that had mismatch repair proficient disease, um, no responses at all out of 18 patients. There's a progression-free survival and an overall survival graph here. The black line is mismatch repair deficient. The red line is mismatch repair proficient. Again, you can see tremendous separation of curves based on really small numbers, but nonetheless, an encouraging signal of long-term response, potentially a long-term response, 12 and 15 months or more, in these patients with mismatch repair deficiency treated with a checkpoint inhibitor. So this led to a multi-center open-label phase two study of patients with defective mismatch repair, MSI high disease, treated with nivolumab this time. 74 patients were enrolled. The response rate was a much more robust 31%. This is summarizing partial responders and complete responders. And almost 70% had stable disease of three months or more. This graph is the probability of remaining progression-free versus months. And you can see this is actually ends at 24 months. It's a pretty long time for a patient that's exhausted standard therapies and would otherwise have a fairly short survival. Um, this is impressive, and overall survival is listed on the bottom. And this really uh, leads to this uh, discussion of the tail of the curve phenomenon on progression-free survival and overall survival. It's unprecedented, basically, for a chemotherapy treatment in colorectal cancer, and we're seeing more and more often in, in various tumor types, including MSI high colon cancer. So what's the mechanism of action of anti-PD-1 therapy in microsatellite high colorectal cancer? So in the absence of immunotherapy, mismatch repair deficiency creates mutations, including frame shift mutations. This leads to proteins that are generated with mutation-associated neoantigens, or MANA, or I'm going to pronounce it as MANA. Um, this MANA is able to bind to the T-cell receptor. But because PD-1 on the surface of the T-cell is binding to PD-L1 on the surface of the tumor cell, this results in T-cell inactivation and, and no immune attack. In the presence of an anti-PD-1 agent, this same frame shift generation and, and MANA is able to bind in the same way, but because anti-PD-1 antibody is binding to the T-cell's PD-1 receptor, um, this T-cell is able to be activated and go on to attack the tumor. So I talked about the tail of the curve phenomenon, and I thought I would just present a stylized uh, graph to illustrate this further. So, uh, and this is not my graph. Um, the purple line represents the situation with chemotherapy, where you have very few, if any, long-term uh, survival. The blue line represents targeted therapies, 
that hopefully are an improvement on the chemotherapy, but in most cases, in colorectal cancer particularly, do not result in long-term survival. Represents the situation that we've seen with checkpoint inhibitors in certain diseases, such as melanoma and renal cell carcinoma, where we really see a nice tail of the curve. And this group of patients, in many cases, uh, can be thought of as being cured of their disease, or they are cured of their disease. In some cases, all of their lesions have disappeared. In other cases, in other uh, situations, many of the lesions have disappeared and are just staying the same size over a long period of time. The red line represents an aspirational attempt to try to get those long-term survivors to a much higher fraction, such that you know, we're having long-term survival in the majority of our metastatic patients. We're not there yet, but combination therapy in colorectal cancer, patient immunotherapy, is showing some promise. Uh, and in fact, uh, nivolumab versus ipilimumab in microsatellite high colorectal cancer was studied on the Checkpoint 142 study. There, 119 patients were enrolled, so these numbers are getting larger and larger as the enthusiasm for this approach grew. Um, nivolumab plus ipilimumab were treated together every three weeks. After four treatments, so about 12 weeks of doing that combined approach, they switched to nivolumab single agent. And here, the waterfall plot, you can see all the bars, almost all the bars are pointing down, and they're pointing strongly down. And in some cases, they're pointing all the way down. So the response rate was 63%, and four of those patients had a complete response. All of their disease was wiped out on their scans. It's amazing. Um, the progression-free survival is here, overall survival is over here, and you can see that these curves are really pushed up, right? So the, the long-term responders, even though this graph is cut off also at about two years, uh, is, is really impressive and something that you would not see with conventional chemotherapy very often, if ever. So what's the catch? So nivolumab plus ipilimumab was associated with higher fraction of adverse events. Um, I think these are manageable, but clearly a higher list of a higher frequency of adverse events relative to single agent checkpoint inhibitors. The median range for the onset of the toxicity uh, was five to 12 weeks. 16 of the patients had to discontinue for a treatment-related adverse event. So you can look at that in, in two ways. That's not a small number of patients, but that's also not an overwhelming number of patients when you have a 63% response rate in all these long-term responders. And no, no deaths were judged to be treatment-related. Looking at the, the most common side effects that were listed as treatment-related, you can see things diarrhea, fever, increased liver enzymes, thyroid dysfunction, rash. There's a whole host of autoimmune side effects that come with these checkpoint inhibitors and CTLA-4 inhibitors. So about 18 months ago, there was approval for nivolumab plus ipilimumab and MSI high colon cancer or defective mismatch repair, providing another treatment option uh, for these patients. So now I'm going to talk about DNA polymerases that I mentioned earlier. So uh, polymerase epsilon and polymerase delta, or pol E and pol D, they encode DNA polymerases responsible for the proofreading function during DNA replication. As I mentioned before, mutations can lead to a hypermutated phenotype with elevated mutation burden, and in some cases, strikingly elevated mutation burden. The frequency of uh, mutations in pol E or pol D in colorectal cancer in this analysis published in JAM Oncology last year was very high, 7.3%. Most other series are more on the order of 1% to 3%. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, a, it's an interesting group of patients. There's a case report of a patient with a pole mutation, a pole mutation treated with pembrolizumab. This was a 44-year-old. He presented with a, a nearly completely obstructing rectal mass, was treated on the paradigm that I told you about before, which is neoadjuvant chemoradiation, followed by resection, followed by adjuvant therapy for six months with Folfox. Unfortunately, three years later, he developed metastatic disease, 
He was placed on multiple chemotherapy regimens, uh, all of which ended up failing in fairly short order. They did molecular testing. It showed that the tumor was microsatellite stable. So that's the indication for a checkpoint inhibitor. But they found this strikingly elevated tumor mutation burden, which was 200 mutations per megabase. Uh, in a typical MSS patient, the tumor mutation burden would be less than 10. So this was 20-fold higher than that in this patient with the POLE-E4, V411 mutation. They were started on pembrolizumab, and this is their CEA response. Pembrolizumab was started here when the patient's CEA was almost 4,000. And you can see that the CEA came all the way down. It doesn't actually tell you what these numbers are, but it came down into the 80 range. So tremendous improvement in the CEA. And this is an interesting way to display this, but these are chest x-rays of this patient. You can see extensive uh, disease. This patient had a, a mucinous tumor. Uh, extensive disease in the lungs uh, that gradually just gets better. And at almost three years on study, those lesions have, um, have cleared it to a significant extent. So patient's still alive with, at three years after um, they were going on hospice at the time they, they got the, this tumor panel. So very impressive response. In the same paper, they reported on several other patients with uh, poly mutations that were treated with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Three of them had this V411 mutation. One had a P286R mutation. Two of them had colorectal cancer. This is the one I've already presented. Two of them had endometrial cancer. There was a range of PD1, PDL1 values, so they weren't all PDL1 positive. Um, they were treated with Pembro in three of the cases, Nevo in, in another, so that probably doesn't matter. Um, two of the colorectal, or both of the colorectal cancer patients in this series had complete responses. Um, whereas the patients with endometrial cancer in this series had partial responses. So based on the case reports in these poly-mutated colorectal cancer patients and endometrial cancer patients, there are multiple clinical trials that are recruiting patients with poly-E and poly-D1 mutations. Um, and I do expect that this will lead to approval in short order for these patients. Now let's switch gears again and talk about BRF mutant colorectal cancer. So BRF mutations occur in approximately 10% of patients with colorectal cancer. These, have, uh, these carry a, a dismal prognosis, aggressive biology, and an overall survival that's roughly one half of those patients that don't have BRF mutations, that have BRF wild type disease. So again, as is the theme, BRF inhibitors in other diseases, treatments in other diseases work great. They don't work well in colon cancer. So in the top right is the New England, New England Journal article where they studied bemurafenib, which is a, a BRF inhibitor, versus a cytotoxic chemoagent called decarbazine. This is in melanoma in 2011. And you can see nice separation of these survival curves and a hazard ratio that's 0.37. So good news for melanoma. I took part in a study when I was at MGH. It was a basket study of multiple tumor types, um, non-small cell lung cancer, cholangiocarcinoma, Langerhans cell histiocytosis, anaplastic thyroid cancer, response rates in all of those diseases. And then you come to colon cancer. There were 10 patients treated with bemurafenib, and the response rate is zero. Um, and even when they combined bemurafenib with cetuximab, the response rate was 4%. So unimpressive and keep in keeping with the theme. Some further data on this, a single-agent single BRF inhibitor in a study conducted by Scott Kopetz et al. Um, the response rate, here's the waterfall. It looks a little more promising on a waterfall, but only one of those patients reached a partial response. So the response rate was 5%. And more importantly, the progression-free survival was two months. So what does that mean? So when we start patients on new therapies in oncology, we image them every two months. So if they progressed at 2.1 months, 
That means most of the patients were progressing the very first time that we imaged them after we started them on the trial. So it did not work, right? And, and you can see that on this progression-free survival graph that goes straight down. So there's been intensive efforts to try to identify the mechanisms of resistance in BRF mutant colorectal cancer, and that's led to multiple combination studies. So I'm going to present some data from a very recent combination study that was published late in 2019 in the New England Journal. Um, this was an open-label phase three study called Beacon. Um, 665 patients with BRF mutant colorectal cancer were enrolled. That's an unbelievable number of patients. And they were assigned one to one to one uh, to triplet, which is a BRF inhibitor plus a MEK inhibitor plus an EGFR inhibitor, the doublet of BRF inhibitor and EGFR, and the control arm that's chemotherapy plus EGFR. And here they had uh, investigators' choice. They could put them on full theory, which is 5-FU, aranotecan, and cetuximab, or they could put them on aranotecan and cetuximab. The response rate was 26% in the triplet, 23% in the doublet, and 2% in the control arm. And the overall survival is depicted here on the triplet, so the triplet versus the control, and the doublet versus the control. And you can see separation of the curves in both the triplet and the doublet therapies. Now, I think if you, if you look closely at this, you'd say, well, the median overall survival was nine months in the triplet, it was 8.4 months in the doublet. That's not very different. Um, and then the control arm, it was 5.4 months and the same, of course, in the other arm. So that's a prolongation of, of survival by 3.6 months. And that's in the eye of the beholder how meaningful 3.6 months is. I think if we're incrementally adding 3.6 months you know, every year, we're going to be pushing this uh, survival of patients with colon cancer ever upwards. But nonetheless, that's not a huge improvement uh, in survival. But I would argue that this tail of the curve that we're seeing in, in the triplet, that's not an immunotherapy combination, is maybe more encouraging. So this is almost 30% of patients are alive at 20 months with BRF mutant colon cancer. So that's, that's pretty impressive. And about 20% of patients with the doublet are alive at 20 months and more. So based on that data, the doublet is actually under consideration by the FDA for approval right now. I think the, like, the uh, non-impressive difference between the triplet and the doublet have led to the triplet not being the one that looks like it's going to get approved. Actually, it looks like it, it could be the doublet if the FDA approves. There has been some criticism of the Beacon study. So it's a very large study, but the way they reported their data, and in particular how they did their control group, was suboptimal. So they didn't list how many patients got full theory plus cetuximab versus aronotecan plus cetuximab. So maybe, you, know, you can say if most patients only got aronotecan plus cetuximab, maybe they would have done better on the control arm had they gotten the larger regimen. It's possible. Other missing information that would have helped us interpret this study um, would, would be knowing the percentage of patients who had received prior adjuvant therapy, um, the regimens that were administered in the frontline setting in these patients. A key metric on many studies now is time from metastatic diagnosis to enrollment. So patients that come on that have had a long time between metastatic diagnosis and enrollment are in general better patients. They're going to do better. And if you get more of them on one arm than another, it could influence your results. And then another important factor is knowing what these patients went on to receive after they came off the study to, under, to better understand this. So I think those are all very legitimate criticisms, and we'll see how the FDA approval plays out. <clears throat> so for the last story, I'm going to talk about uh, the classification of colon cancer, molecular classification. And a number of um, consensus molecular subtypes have been generated on the basis of RNA-seq and nanostring data. And, and they are creatively named CMS1, 2, 3, and 4. Not creatively named. So in CMS1, this is the immune-activated subgroup. 
They have a very high rate of hypermutation. They have abundant cytotoxic T lymphocytes. They have abundant CD68 positive macrophages, uh, which is a positive factor. And they have a standard amount of fibrotic stroma. CMS2 and CMS3 are the canonical and metabolic subgroups, um, but more importantly, they are immune deserts. So they have almost no, and in some cases, no cytotoxic lymphocytes infiltrating their tumors. Um, they differ in the amount of macrophages and in the frequency of hypermutation between CMS2 and 3, but they don't differ on the stroma. And the final subtype is the mesenchymal subtype, or CMS4. They have a, a middling amount of hypermutation. They have a middling amount of cytotoxic lymphocytes, but it's not zero. Um, but they have tons of fibrotic stroma. That's the key factor with CMS4. And in comparing CMS classification system for right-sided tumors and left-sided tumors, you can see some major differences. So on right-sided tumors, you have overrepresentation of the CMS1 subtype, this yellow um, slice to the pie, that's much smaller in left-sided tumors. And in left-sided tumors, you have a much greater fraction of this CMS2 immune desert uh, relative to right-sided tumors. So immune combination strategies to try to have an immune response in patients that wouldn't otherwise respond to immunotherapy strategies in colorectal cancer have been advanced based on this classification system, and, and they're being tested. In some cases, they're recruiting patients that are um, pre-classified on their CMS uh, score to enroll a, a specific subgroup. So in the CMS1 subgroup, that's where we're already seeing success in immunotherapy. These are the patients that have MSI high disease. These are the patients that have poly mutations. They have high tumor mutation burden. So the key is how can we boost that up even further so that all or virtually all patients are responding to immunotherapy. And so checkpoint inhibitor plus anti-CTLA-4, that's Nevo plus IPI, for example, that's already been done and that's approved. Um, but other strategies would include a neoantigen vaccine plus a checkpoint inhibitor or a neoantigen vaccine plus checkpoint inhibitor plus CTLA-4. Uh, for the CMS2 and CMS3 subtypes, the goal is to get these tumors to be hot instead of cold, i.e. having cytotoxic T lymphocytes infiltrating the tumor. And the most exciting strategies are to employ cell-based technologies, dendritic cell vaccine and adoptive cell therapies, to try to induce that um, migration of T cells into the tumor. Other strategies are chemotherapy with immunotherapy, and so far that's been pretty disappointing, I have to say. Uh, EGFR pathway inhibition with checkpoint inhibitor, and so far that's been toxic. So we'll see. Um, but this is a large subgroup of patients with colorectal cancer, the largest statistically, and we need to do better. CMS4, the strategies that, strategies that have been advanced, and I'm going to talk about one example of this in a moment, are TGF-beta pathway inhibitors plus checkpoint, anti-angiogenesis inhibitors plus checkpoint inhibitors, and anti-Treg or anti-myelin suppressor cell treatments. So I'm going to close with a drug that you would never expect uh, a GI oncologist to close on, uh, which is regorafenib, which is one of the most thoroughly unimpressive drugs in the history of medicine up until now. Uh, I'm sure the company would love me saying this, but this is a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Uh, it's focused on VEGF, FDFR, platelet-derived growth factor, and a variety of other receptors that include BRAF and KIT. It achieved FDA approval on the basis of a phase three study called the correct study. I would list it as the incorrect study. It had an overall survival benefit of 1.4 months. Just stunning that that, that that led to approval. It was statistically significant, which is the criterion, but that's pathetic. And a progression-free survival of 0.2 months. That's um, not really detectable to me. Um, and the response rate was 1% in that, in that study. So very unimpressive statistics. And, 
um, as expected, the uptake and use has really been limited by this efficacy. Um, inability to identify patients that benefit more strongly and the relatively poor tolerability profile of the drug. Despite that, someone has to plan to combine this uh, with immunotherapy. And I would have been very pessimistic about the chances for success and very optimistic for the chances for adverse events, but I was wrong. So 25 patients with advanced colorectal cancer and 25 with gastric cancer were treated with regorafenib, which is treated on 21 to 28 days in combination with NEVO. Again, regorafenib is a drug with a response rate of less than 5%, and NEVO is a drug that doesn't work in patients with MSS, or mismatch repair proficient patients, right? So this experiment should not work. The experiment worked, right? So um, there's a lot of down, downward trending bars there. Um, the response rate in those MSS colon cancer patients, this is only the colorectal cancer cohort, 33%, I mean, that's amazing. You took a drug that has a 1% response rate and a drug that has a 0% response rate, and you've ended up with a 33% response rate. This is a swimmer plot. Swimmer plot is um, basically patients on the y-axis and time on the x-axis. I like this better than swimmer plot because it has some shape to it. And you can also see the ongoing patients with red arrows. And if you look at the number of months on study here, this graph goes out to 14 months. So these patients are strongly benefiting from therapies that shouldn't be benefiting them. Um, and we have to remember, these, these are patients that have progressed on standard therapies. On the correct study, the control arm and the treatment arm, uh, the median overall survival is six months or seven months. So these patients that are still on study at a year and a 33% response rate is uh, unexpected and phenomenal. So I think a radiograph is worth a thousand words. A 77-year-old man with RAS wild-type metastatic rectal cancer had progressed on prior chemo. Uh, they were PD-L1 negative. These CAT scans are of the chest. You can see this very large right upper lobe lesion and an extremely large left lower lobe lesion that at the end of cycle six, the right upper lobe one had basically disappeared and the left lower lobe one had shrunk to an amazing amount. So what about the AEs? So when they first combined this at the starting dose of regorafenib, which is 160 milligrams, all three patients had grade three or greater toxicity. And this is kind of what I thought would happen when they did this, this study. So that's, of course, a no-go, and they didn't enroll any further patients, thank goodness. At the 120 milligram dose level, 44% of patients had grade three or greater toxicity. That's still pretty high uh, for developing a drug. So they moved on. They treated a fair number of patients there, but they moved on to 80 milligrams. And I would argue that this, is, this might be tolerable. This is 27% grade three toxicity with an amazing response rate um, and, and durable responses. So based on this uh, single-arm phase two study of regorafenib and NEVO is being conducted in patients with uh, proficient mismatch repair or microsatellite-stable colon cancer. So in conclusion, colorectal cancer rates are on the decline overall in the U.S., but there is a sharp increase in incidence in younger patients, and we don't know why. It's a major uh, prerogative to identify these patients. I think earlier screening makes sense despite the cost. I think we need to identify the mechanisms and bring those rates down. New metastatic treatments have brought a more than three-fold increase in survival since 1995 and a six-fold increase since the 1980s, but less than 15% of patients live five years or more, and that's not acceptable. So continued advancement is expected with novel therapies and combinations. Immunotherapy has delivered incredible gains in survival for patients with multiple tumor types, including MSI high colorectal cancer, but only 5% of patients have um, MSI high disease and colorectal cancer. So what about the other 95%? I'm hopeful that the strategies of 
regorafenib and nivolumab hold up to further scrutiny in larger sample sizes. I'm hopeful that we have more polymerase epsilon and polymerase delta stories to tell uh, as we go forward. And that should raise this number and really raise the tail of the curve. BRF mutant colorectal cancer carries a dismal prognosis with poor responses to systemic therapy. But I think we're seeing some potentially promising therapeutics for BRF mutant disease on the horizon. So with that, thank you for listening. Um, and just wanted to tell you, my family and I moved here about four and a half months ago. We've really been enjoying our transition to the Upper Valley. And on a professional level, I've loved uh, interacting with you and collaborating. Um, been extremely impressed with the dedication to patient care, willingness to collaborate, willingness to show me around when I'm getting lost on campus here. Um, and this is a, uh, some photos of my family and I at various iconic Upper Valley locations. Um, I'm not sure if people would regard Killington to be an Upper Valley location, but I put it on there because the skiway wasn't ready yet. Um, but with that, I'll take any questions. Thank you. We have a little bit of time. Are there any questions? Yes, Eric. Great presentation. Thanks. This is kind of a, uh, a theoretical question. I don't treat colorectal cancer, but um, the which do you think is more important? Understanding the consensus molecular subtypes or is in or like specific mutations and targeting like one to one, I know it says mutations as it's a target. Um, because is, is the consensus molecular stuff type more about the biology of the um, microenvironment? Um, but it seems like it's kind of, I don't know, like um, just a little bit more um, like mechanistic, but to enhance, you need to, um, it's a concert, like it's a yeah. working concert yeah. versus the one-to-one, -one, this has a mutation, and here's a drug in one thing. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there. Um, I think in terms of the chances for success, I think targeting an individual gene is probably higher yield than than so far with these consensus molecular subtypes. The consensus molecular subtypes, uh, you know, in some cases you have cutoffs for how you place one patient in CMS one versus two versus three. There's some controversy about the categorization. I think it's better in illustrating the general themes and pathways that you might want to target. And it could be fruitful, I think, in particular for immunotherapy plus, plus targeted therapy combos. But I think in terms of developing bona fide targeted molecules, we're better off on the you know, gene by gene, mutation by mutation approach. Uh, and, and that's playing out in other tumor types too. And so I think those are the highest yield clinical trials. Um, and in terms of our cancer center and enrolling these patients nationwide, this is a, a major challenge though, because some of these mutations are pretty rare even those pole E and pole delta mutations and um, detecting the mutations and the cost that's associated with detecting them is, is, a, is an obstacle. And then finding enough of those patients at any one cancer center to enroll enough patients to find the signal and finish the study is another challenge. So I think we need more cooperation between, uh, between sites and between uh, academic medical centers uh, to really be able to get these uh, rare tumor studies done. Okay, thank you. So, great talk. I was curious, what patient should not be entered into a clinical trial? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think there are some general principles of patients that are unlikely to benefit. So we look at something called a performance status, and that's how healthy a patient is coming into the study. Um, you know, if they are mostly bed-bound and um, have poor organ function, some of those variables, they clearly shouldn't be coming onto a study. For an immunotherapy study, there's 
there's some criteria that have to do with whether they've had autoimmune disease or whether they've had toxicity from other therapies that might predict that they're at greater risk from getting toxicity from an immunotherapy. So there's some immunotherapy-specific criteria that we look at. Um, but those are a couple of the subgroups that you, know, you wouldn't want to put on a study or probably isn't going to be able to go on a study. Having said that, I think even some of those patients with poor performance status, if you have a therapy that works in a high enough fraction, you can have a Lazarus effect in some of these patients, and you can literally bring them from horrible performance status back into, you know, a full function. And non-small cell lung cancer, I think, is fairly famous for some of those therapies with uh, ALK translocations and, and, and ALK inhibitors, EGFR mutations and EGFR inhibitors, where even a poor performance status uh, patient might have a, a chance of substantial benefit. Yeah. Oh, really great talk. There's a lot of detailed information from non-oncologists. So I'm interested in how do you, as a researcher, respond when you see some ineffective therapies work? Do you think the models are wrong, or do you think there's something you have to measure and that these things are working? Yeah, that's a great question. I, so that correct study, which I spent a lot of time um, criticizing, you know, that, that was not molecularly sub, um, stratified at all, and I think. When they, I didn't show this data, but when they applied the CMS classification to regorafenib, there actually was a much greater benefit in the CMS4 subgroup. I should have said this, actually, because it's pretty relevant. But, so in that CMS4 classification, this is one example where we might be able to better identify those patients that are going to benefit from a given targeted therapy. And admittedly, with regorafenib, it's a pretty tough, it's a tough sell. It hits so many targets, how do you know even which one is going to be relevant, right? But... Um, but angiogenesis, three of the receptors are angiogenesis-related, and we think a lot of the activity comes from that. So I think, to get to your question, I think how are we going to know um, that agents that look relatively inactive might be good in combination? I think some of that has to do with the preclinical work that can be done that might show immune modulation in the case of regorafenib. And in fact, they do see that. So there's a, a pathway called colony, colony stimulating factor, CSF1, that governs the transition between certain types of macrophages, good macrophages and bad macrophages within the tumor. Right raffinib looks like it toggles uh, those numbers and, and may be one of the reasons that the combination with the checkpoint inhibitor is successful. The other relates to the CMS classifier that, uh, you know, that's a high, high angiogenesis subtype. So a drug like right might work. So I think we have to be critical about looking in the mechanisms of the drug and the preclinical data to try to generate hypotheses of which inactive drugs might be active when we put them together. Okay. Uh, this will be the last question. Cascade? No, yeah, we don't. So as far as I know, we don't have that here at all. And so that's one of the problems with the CMS classifier is that different groups are doing this differently uh, and have different cutoffs for how they classify them. So MD Anderson's been at the forefront of the CMS classifier. Scott Kopetz in that group. Um, and so far, it's, a, it's something that's, as far as I know, only really accessible on a clinical study if you're going to use it to enroll patients. Um, but I think over time, if that classifier holds up in other examples where you can show benefit that's predicted by the modeling, we might see more of those kinds of studies where we do an RNA-seq assay in a patient's tumor, and then we determine whether they're eligible for a trial, and hopefully they um, have a higher chance of benefiting. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Ferris again. <laughs>